Today's video was recorded on January 17, 2023. Today's lesson begins a series on the Lord's appointed feasts. These are the biblical holidays that Christians usually refer to as those Jewish holidays, but this really couldn't be further from the truth. These are God's appointed feasts. These are the holidays of Jesus, the disciples, Paul, and even the early church. And what's more amazing is how central these holidays are to the Gospels. So much of the ministry of Jesus pertains to these holidays and how he's fulfilling them and God's plan of redemption is unfolding. God is making an appointment with his people and it's our responsibility to show up. So make sure you subscribe to the channel and keep up with the lessons throughout this series. Truly, you'll find yourself saying over and over how remarkable the details of the New Testament fit right into this holiday system. Now, Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're supported through the generosity of our amazing donors. If you found our lessons valuable with your study of the Bible, we ask that you would consider becoming a monthly supporter. You can establish a monthly giving plan for as little as $5 per month. Your financial support directly impacts our ability to continue to expand our reach and help others just like you go deeper into the biblical text. We've included in the description section below a link that'll take you directly to our donation page, which is through a partnership with DonorBox. You can also click the link above in this video. DonorBox is a secure donation service where you create your own account and they keep track of your giving throughout the year. So for all of our supporters, we give a big Hazak Hazat Benikazek, which translates, be strong, be strong, and together we'll be strengthened. Thank you again for all your amazing support. We hope you enjoy this upcoming series on the Lord's appointed feasts, and that you're able to see the amazing coordination of God's plan of redemption. So, God's appointed feasts. Now, we'll talk about that name. Sometimes I'm going to call them God's holidays. Sometimes God's appointed feasts. And I think it'll be important at some point to talk about the idea of appointed feasts. Because it, it really is as if God is making an appointment. I'm going to be here and I want my people to join me. And this becomes a really powerful thing, even for Christians, when they start to look at the holidays and celebrate them, they feel a sense that is a little bit different. Like, I'm meeting God at a particular time and place, and God's going to show up. So there's, a, there's real power in these holidays, which is why I think it's really important that we at least know what they are. Okay, so what you see there on the background, and will be part of our background, is if you've been to a Passover Seder, that's a Seder plate, and all of the, the cup of wine, the matzah bread, we'll talk more about the symbolism of that, but I just needed something that would at least show the, the holiday spirit, but when we get into the Passover and the details of the Passover, we'll talk more about what's going on with, with all of that symbolism and how Jesus fulfills it. Okay, so just as a way of preview, we're going to cover three topics. We're going to start at Luke 22. So if, you're, if you want to move in your Bible to Luke 22, that's fine. We're going to start there. We'll do a review, a quick review of the holidays, just to point out where they're at in your Bible in Leviticus 23. And it, they're found in some other places in your Bible, which I have on your handout. But this is the main area that we'll be working out of, Leviticus 23. We'll do a quick review of that, and then we'll spend the majority of our time talking about the concept of redemption. And we need to flesh out a little bit about what redemption is and God's plan to redeem the cosmos or the world, as we translate it in John. So God has a plan to redeem the, the, the world. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. So, and Jesus is part of this redemptive plan. And the holidays are a picture of the redemptive plan. And the idea is that God wants you to participate every year on an annual basis, embodying these uh, holidays 
and in a way, what you're doing is you're actually uh, it's it's uh, like a pattern for spiritual growth as well. So you grow as well as a kind of a dress rehearsal for what's going to come. It's pretty neat. It's uh, and and there's a definite sequence to it. But here's the thing. The word redemption, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of inquisitive looks when you get when we start talking redemption in uh, our modern Christian lingo, we use the word saved or salvation. We don't use redemption as much, but redemption is the bigger plan. God's going to redeem the world. That's the redemption. He wants to redeem us in the fullest sense. And inside of redemption, there are God's saving acts. So it gets a little bit confusing over the course of the next few weeks. We'll talk about more about redemption and salvation, what the scholars see as the differences. But anyways, we need to look at what, what redemption is, because there's some nuances to that that help us understand the Bible and these holidays. Okay, let's go. We're going to start in Luke. So let's start. We're not going to read a whole lot of Luke, but I just want you to see how important it is when we approach our New Testament to really pay attention to the details that are going on. So Luke 22 is right before what in our Christian, um, as Christians, we call the Last Supper. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I just want you to notice, as we start reading Luke 22, verse 1, the way it starts off, most of the Bibles, there's not a lot of variations in translation, but basically, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? So there's one feast, Luke is pointing out which is called the Passover. Now, that gets a little bit confusing, right? So we have Feast of Unleavened Bread. Somehow it's also called the Passover, which is true. They refer to it as Passover. But he's setting up the stage for what is about to happen next. We have a Passover meal going on. Then you're going to go into the garden. You have the crucifixion. And all of that, all the Bible writers, all want us to know what's going on. They don't have to include these details. The details are vital to understanding what's going on with the story. So he's setting the stage. Now, the problem is, for many Christians, you know, we read past that sentence. We don't even pause to say, now, what's Luke talking about? Why is he including that detail? What's the context of these holidays if we don't have any awareness of it? Because everybody in the first century, you say Passover, they've celebrated it just like you've done Christmas your whole life. So that's how he starts out. Now, what I want you to see is how he's going to start repeating. So God, uh, Luke is going to start some repetition. It's almost like, again, there's many times in the Bible where the repetition gets so much, right? So verse 1, Feast of Unleavened Bread which is called the Passover. So right there, he's setting the stage. Now, what I want you to do is, from Luke 22, 1, look down to verse 7. Now he's about to repeat it. And, you know, he, he could leave a sentence like this out. You know, maybe it doesn't add to our idea of what's going on that evening. The day of unleavened bread came, on which the Passover lamb must be sacrificed. But Luke is... He's painting a picture or helping you build a picture in your mind of the context. Verse 8, Jesus said to Peter and John, go prepare the Passover. So there's some event that we have to prepare for. And there's, or preparation is involved. There's a lamb to be sacrificed. There's a lot going on in this. And we don't have, in our modern sense, we don't have any context for what's happening then that they all do. Uh, one more I'll give you. Look at verse 14. When the hour had come, he, that's Jesus, reclined. Well, if you've been to a Passover, you know that's part of the Passover meal, is reclining at the table, because in God's eyes, we're all royalty on this evening. We're all wealthy. Only the wealthy uh, recline while they're eating. And then he says, verse 15, he says to them, 
I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. Now look at that. Unleavened bread, unleavened bread, Passover, 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 Passover. And I think Passover is even in there a couple more times that I didn't put in. But you can see the big thing that's happening, right? And we kind of read past that very quickly. Now, I want to show you something because this is kind of what happens in our mind mentally. or We'll, we'll just like shut down. So what meal are the disciples eating? Well, they just tell us that, right? They're eating the Passover meal. But to us, when we're reading this, we think Last Supper, because that's what it's called to us. It has nothing to do with Passover, right? Even though there it is all over the place, we don't even think Passover meal. So, for instance, I'll show you one example. Um, this is the Bible that I, the New Heart English Bible that I was pulling that verse from. Here's the chapter. One thing about the New Heart English Bible is it doesn't put any chapter headings. Now, if you look in your Bible at Luke 22, do you have chap or do you have little headings where they're telling you something? Judas betrays Jesus, or um, the Last Supper would might be another one, right? So, by the way, this is this website that I have on the sheet here is BibleHub.com. It's a very helpful one because you can look at the Greek and the Hebrew behind it. But notice if you read through, you don't get any interpretive statements like what's going on. But if we go to the King James, so here's a picture of the King James, and you have all these little headings, right? The Last Supper, the Lord's Supper is instituted. And what happens because we're so, we're inside of this Christian context, modern Christian context, when you read this chapter, as soon as you see Last Supper, oh, I know what that is. And you completely stop asking questions. That's why I want to bring this up is we're not paying attention to the details that Luke is giving us because in our context, oh, it's the Last Supper, and hey, I've seen the picture, I don't need to know anymore, right? This is what a first century Galilean or, yeah, meal looks like. It's like, no, that's a Roman meal or, a, you know, somewhere in Italy in the 1500s or whenever Da Vinci painted that. I think you get my point. When they put the headings in, our brain automatically goes to what we, what we know and we forget about all those details. So it's really important. We're going to flesh out. Why do they want you to know that it's a Passover and unleavened bread? It's all the stuff that goes behind there that Luke never tells us. Why does he repeat it so many times? So that's what we're going to be doing. And it really becomes the details are so powerful. Like, let me show you one more detail here. Look at verse 10. You know, we don't read the Bible this way. We don't look, read the Bible and say, now, why did Luke include that random detail? We just assume, well, that's how it happened, and they're telling the story. But he doesn't tell us everything. It doesn't, he doesn't tell us every detail. So verse 9 and 10, uh, the disciples say to Jesus, where do you want us to prepare this meal? We've got to go do preparations. Verse 10, he says, look when you've entered the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. And now you're going to go follow him into a house. And you say, now, why does he include that random detail? Well, it tells us something, right? If we know Jerusalem, if we know the customs, right? Do, do men carry water in the Eastern culture? No, men don't care. That's the job of the women to carry water. All right, then why is this guy carrying water? Because there's no women. And you say, now, what group of people were men, or scholars debate about this, it's the Essene people, the Essenes. The Essenes are the people who are associated with the Dead Sea Scroll. And Herod the Great, if you look at a map, and maybe the back of your Bible has a map, and you look at the site where, the new, where, the, where we say that the Last Supper was, it'll be inside a little quarter of the city called the Essene Quarter. Um, there was a, a gate that they found back in the night, late 70s, the Essene Gate. Herod the Great had given the Essenes their own quarter of, of Jerusalem. And what's important about this is the Essenes, they had gone out to the site in uh, the desert where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were rejecting the authority of the, of the temple, the priests at the temple. They said, you guys are corrupt. We're not following you. And they had a different calendar. So there's a big debate. Did Jesus actually eat his meal on Passover, or was he on Passover the Passover lamb? And there's a debate going on because we can't line it up with the Jewish calendar. 
And some scholars say, well, aha, uh-huh, don't look at the Jewish calendar, look at the Essene calendar. Because Jesus eats his meal in the Essene quarter. And this just might be one little bit of insight that helps us unravel this mess of when all this stuff happened. How do we know Essene? Ah, man carrying water. And just a little detail like that would never, you know, not in a million years, until somebody who knows the city so well points something out like that and knows the culture so well. So it's a cultural thing. So what I'm saying is we'll look eventually at this, at where it's at in the city and why that makes this important and the calendar system of the Essenes and how it was different from the Jews. But I just wanted to point out a detail like that. Okay, now let's do this real quick. Uh, Turn to Leviticus 23. So now we started at Luke. Hey, you know, we read past Luke. We don't even pay attention to the context. Now let's go back into the Old Testament. Where are these holidays found? So let's go to uh, Leviticus 23. And this is where you can find all of them. There are other places in the, in the Old Testament as well. But Leviticus 23 is a good place to start. Now, the very first thing that God says in Leviticus 23 is the, the Sabbath. That's an appointed time. And as I know I've said in the past, uh, it's like a date night. Right? If if Israel is the bride and God is the bridegroom, or the church is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom, well then in order to have a better relationship, we go on a date night. And that's the Sabbath. You have a date night with your with your spouse so that you can get to know them better. And that to a Jew is not something that you say, wah wah, I have to have a Sabbath. It's a celebration to be with God and celebrate the creation. So just something to think about how you uh, view a Sabbath, although we won't be talking about it too much tonight. Okay, verse 5, Leviticus 23, verse 5. First holiday on the list, Passover. So we just saw that was that the Passover that Luke was talking about. And if we notice something, we notice that it's on the 14th day of the month. So I have these, uh, if you look at your handout, in the, the middle column of your handout tells you what date, if there's a date associated. So it's the 14th day of the month. Now, the very next holiday, if you look at verse 6 in Leviticus 23, well, that's called unleavened bread. That's what we just saw in Luke, the Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover. So these things get smooshed together in a way that becomes a little bit confusing. So Passover, 14th day of the month, unleavened bread, 15th day, which is the very next day. So when, when does a day begin in Judaism or in Israel in Jesus' day? When does the day begin? At sundown. Okay? Why? That's how God created the world. And it was evening, and it was morning, one day. And it was evening, and it was morning. So evening comes first, right? And And actually, that's how God moves in the world, right? He takes you from darkness to light, from darkness to light. He's always illuminating us to give us, you know, more insight to things. So this becomes confusing because Passover, we're going to see that, hey, that, that sacrifice on Passover, the 14th day, happens at the very end of the day, 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon, which means in only a couple hours, the very next holiday is beginning. So when you sacrifice the lamb at three o'clock, you eat it for dinner. And that's now in the, inside the next holiday. Becomes a little bit confusing, and that's when it's going to be an important point when we time out Jesus. So 14th day, 15th day. Then third on the list, first fruits. It's the day after the Sabbath. Now this, there becomes an argument. Unleavened bread, you're supposed to take a day off of work. Well, is that a Sabbath? Or does this, is the Sabbath a Saturday, like normal? And now you have an argument, because God doesn't tell us, and so you have to get along and figure it out as a community. So, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, they all happen in the same week, and this harvest is barley, which happens around March to April. Okay, those first three. Next, look at verse, go down to Leviticus 23, verse 15. And you'll find something called the Festival of Weeks. 
Leviticus 23.15, God's going to make two statements. He's going to say, count seven weeks. And so weeks in Hebrew, Shavuot, and that's where you get the name of the, the holiday, count seven weeks. Then he's going to say, count 50 days. That's the next thing. And in Greek, 50 days is Pentecost. So this is our Pentecost holiday from the New Testament. Uh, well, not from the New Testament. The one we see in Acts started way back with Moses. It's just by the time you get to a Greek-written document, they're calling it Pentecost. So that, ha that holiday was instituted way back at Mount Sinai. Okay, now this one, because it's seven weeks later, we have a different harvest, and that one is wheat. So barley harvest first, wheat harvest next. This one usually happens sometime around the end of May. So, okay, right there, and I know you've heard me say this a, a million times, but it always, I think it's so cool when you, when you stop and think about it. You have these three holidays up here. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. They all happen in the span of a week. 14th day, 15th day, day after the Sabbath. They're right together. And what we see is, of course, the Bible, the way they present Jesus is he's the Passover lamb. He dies on Passover as the Passover lamb, right at three o'clock when they're sacrificing that Passover lamb. He is God's Passover lamb that's offered for the world. So, the Passover lamb. So Jesus is the Passover lamb. Well, he's then buried for the very next holiday. He's in the ground. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it cannot come back, you know, and multiply. So he's the bread of the world, but he's unleavened bread. He has no sin. So Jesus dies as the Passover lamb. He's the unleavened bread of the world. Now, assuming that that unleavened bread was a Saturday and a Sabbath, then what's the very next day? Sunday. And he's resurrected. And what's the holiday? First fruits. Paul says Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. So he's hitting these holidays. They're, these holidays are central to what's happening. That's why it's so important to know it. Okay, so he resurrects, right? He walks around with his disciples for 40 days and then says, okay, I'm going to ascend. Uh, but stay at the temple, guys. Don't leave the temple. Go to the temple, right? Because 40 days and 50 days later, count 50 days, what's happening? The Holy Spirit's coming down. Just like at Mount Sinai, it's a gift from heaven that comes down. And so Jesus hits the Festival of Weeks. He's four for four that, uh, for those holidays. I mean, this right here, it's like, whoa, I need to pay attention to this uh, if you've never heard it before. It's like he is fulfilling everyone. He's fulfilling it not so you don't have to. This is the plan of redemption that's being actualized, and then we get to participate in it, right? There is never, there's no command that says don't, and well, in fact, Paul says when you celebrate the festivals. It wasn't until the, till the 300s, till the Council of Nicaea, that they really start to clamp down on Christians celebrating these holidays and making, um, well, you know, you're a heretic if you start celebrating those holidays, but that's not until the 300s. So, okay, those are the first four holidays. Now look down at verse 24, Leviticus 23, 24, and this is uh, the Feast of Trumpets. That's an odd feast, but we'll talk about that one, just a one-day festival. Then you have uh, verse 27, the Day of Atonement, and then you finish up with the seven holidays uh, verse 34, and that one is called the Festival of Tabernacles. All of these, number five, six, and seven, Feast of Trumpets normally happens in September. So that's why people who follow prophecy and are looking for Jesus to come back get really anxious around September to be watching the signs. They're not so anxious, you know, back in, I don't know, January 10th or whatever because it's not on the holiday, Jesus is in the holiday system, because what's, what are we waiting for when Jesus comes back? The trumpet blast. Oh, sorry. Those are grapes and olives. Th those final holidays that happen, five, six, and seven, those are in the fall, so it's the final harvest. In fact, this is what our Thanksgiving is based off of, the tabernacle. 
But what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Jesus to come back. The trumpet's going to blow. We're all going to be called to judgment. That's the, and you get the Day of Atonement. And then we have a giant celebration. And you can see these holidays are in a very specific order for a reason. And they're telling us something about what God is doing. And then Jesus, of course, is participating in them. And we are invited to participate as well. So, okay, those are the seven holidays. That's very quick. We're going to go detail by detail by detail into these because, as you guys know, it's remarkable the number of details that help paint this picture of what's happening. And then we'll talk, too, about, well, what if we're participating in it? What are we looking for in our own uh, walk with Jesus and these holidays? So that's where you can find them. I would encourage you throughout the study to keep reading Leviticus 23. It helps to become more familiar. But just like any commandment, you learn it the best by doing it. So if you want to learn the holidays to solidify it, so it's not j just an abstract piece of information, celebrate a Passover, and that'll help solidify it. Well, celebrate all of them. It'll help solidify it. Okay. Now, we're going to switch gears a little bit because... Oh, by the way, I put this on your handout and I forgot to put it on a slide. We will be doing Hanukkah. I'm not going to do any of the other, like Purim or any of the fast days, but we will be looking at Hanukkah because that does actually, it helps you understand what we're, what's happening in, at, uh, at, around Christmas time. Uh, and oh, by the way, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. That's in John 10, verse 22, and you can look that up. It's on your sheet called the Festival of Dedication. So, okay. Now, as I mentioned, these holidays, then, are, they're painting a picture. It's a picture of the idea of redemption, which we're going to talk about. What do you mean by redemption? But it's, they're painting a picture. And this is so important to, as we study these holidays, to remember that we are in the West. We think completely different. And in the West, we love definitions. So if I say redemption, you want to know, give me a definition of redemption. And I did put one on your sheet. We'll get to that in a minute. We're Westerners. That's what we want. And definitions tend to be abstract statements. That's right out of the, the Greek mindset. Okay? Now, the problem is the Bible's written in the East, and it's written by Easterners. And if you ask an Easterner, express truth to me, what an Easterner does is he tells you a story. And the story carries the truth. Of, they'll tell a vivid story that has a concrete nature to it. The story carries the truth. It's like a parable, a fable. Now, the, the hard part is we have to know the symbols, and we have to know the, maybe some context to the story. But that story can so often carry truth better than a definition. We remember stories. We all love stories. So if you ask an East Easterner for a definition, they'll probably tell you a story. And here's a story to, to illustrate that. So I had uh, been at a conference, and we would meet every few times a year, and there was a rabbi who would come. Now, he was, he was actually from Europe, uh, but he would fly over for this conference. Uh, his name was Saul, Rabbi Saul. You know, he was trained as a rabbi. And so one day, I, yeah, I'd pepper him with questions. And one day I said, how do you define salvation? Which is totally a Western thing to do. I'm asking for a definition. He kind of gives me this look like, really? Like, this is as deep as you can go? Like, how do you define salvation? He looks at me and he says, read the book of Exodus. And I just, I was like dumbfounded. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, that's, that's salvation. But it's in a story. So you read the story and the story, all the stuff that's happening is, defines what you're, what you're looking for. And I can I mean, by now, I realize, oh, he's totally right, but it's Eastern way of doing it. But once you get those pictures, once you get that story, it's powerful to help you see what the Bible's telling us. So when we look at redemption tonight, we got to look for the stories, a picture, and I'll use that to try to help uh, explain it. The thing that's important is the sequence of this, as I mentioned, the sequence of the holidays matter, right? God's not random. These are not disconnected holidays. And it's a dress rehearsal. We're going to go embody these holidays, participate in them. And they help us connect with God. And then finally, they're a pattern for spiritual growth. So 
just as all of us have to go through a process of confession and repentance as things crop up in our life and we need to get back on track with God and you have to do spiritual disciplines and these are all woven into these holidays. So there's, there should be a growth process coming out of these holidays. So there's a pattern of spiritual growth, and we'll talk about that over the course of the uh, study. So, okay, so what's redemption, right? What is this idea of redemption? Redemption is a cultural idea. It's a cultural idea from the Near East. And then God, in order to communicate an idea to his people, he uses a cultural idea. He doesn't give them an abstraction that they have to then figure out. He says, I'm going to redeem you. Ah, I know what redemption is because everybody does it around me. So it's a cultural thing. And it has to do with the idea of a, the father's house. It's a patriarchal society. So at the basic structure of society, you have the father's house. And this picture right here is a picture that I took. Uh, we were flying in southern Iraq. So I took this in 2003. Southern Iraq, so it was outside the city of Baghdad. When you get into the city of Baghdad, it looks more like a city. But this is way down in the farmland. Uh, the, the, the wheat had been harvested. It was about the end of May, the beginning of June, so right around the time of, of Pentecost. You can see, if you look closely on that picture, you can see the big, uh, big piles of wheat and they need to get out on the threshing floor. And we would see the women out there with pitchforks throwing the... I mean, it's very traditional society. These lifestyles are primitive to what we're used to. And what you see here is that you would come across these clusters of buildings. And then you say, well, what are these? Well, it's one single family builds their household around the patriarch, around the father's house. So you have a patriarch, you have a father in the middle, and then all the sons, as they would marry, the sons would come live around the father. The daughters would go marry off and they would go live around their husband's father in a little compound type thing uh, that's called the father's house, right? And how many rooms are in the father's house? There are many rooms in the father's house, right? I'm going to prepare one for you. That's redemption talk. All the disciples know what Jesus is saying. This is central to the way that their, their society is structured. So comes right out of this great idea of the Father's house. So it's, that, it's the first line structure in society. So here's what happens. Okay, imagine you have that household right there. That's the Father's house. And in the center of that is the Father. So the patriarch is the one that he's actually the lawgiver. I mean, he's, he's all kinds of things that we don't think about that today. But the father's house, uh, the patriarch, the most important person in that household besides him is the oldest son who sits at his right hand, right? That's why the, the oldest son is the one in line to receive a double portion because they're going to take over the responsibility of the patriarch. So you have the oldest son and his family, and then it builds up all the families around it. Now, what would happen if one of those families suddenly finds themselves outside the father's house? They get, for whatever reason, we'll talk about the, we'll talk about why, an enemy, life circumstances, whatever. But if they're outside the father's house, who has to go get them? Well, the father, has, the father has to put his resources on the line, and he'll send his son, his eldest son, to go rescue the family members and bring them back into the kinship circle. That's redemption. That's redemption, and that's what God does for us, right? He sent his only son to redeem the cosmos. Oh, the whole world is redeemed through him. He comes in as the re Redeemer, and he brings us home. So that's a picture of redemption rather than a definition of redemption. We see this all over the Bible, but they never give us a definition. They give us examples of it. So that you're restored back in. Your sins are forgiven. You're restored back into the household. Your shame is undone so that you're restored back into the household. 
And yes, there will be the fullness of redemption one day, but now, as a metaphor, we see what's happening with God in our own lives. Okay, so that's, that's, cult, that's redemption. Now, I gave you a definition. If you look at the p- bottom of page one, because there's something about, there can be money involved as well, right? So if you look at the bottom of page one, it says, in sociolegal contexts, redemption generally refers to the rescue of an individual, right? We're going out to rescue an individual from a difficult obligation. It may be money. It may be a strong enemy. It may be whatever by means of a monetary payment. And even if you think about our concept of sin as a debt and that Jesus paid the price for our sin, it comes right out of this idea of redemption. Okay, so what might cause you to get taken out of the Father's house, right? The three main ones in the Bible, the three main ideas in the Bible are these, and well, I'll offer an example. And we are on number five. What's going to take you outside the Father's house? The first one is a strong enemy. So, for instance, the Pharaoh, right? This Pharaoh is keeping the Israelites from leaving and being with God. That's the strong enemy. We have life circumstances. So, for instance, Ruth. Think Ruth, right? She had a husband. The husband dies. Now she's got no. Bet Ab, no father's house. What has to happen? You have a kinsman redeemer, Boaz, who, who redeems Ruth in back into the father's household. So Ruth, no fault of her own. Husband died. There's a famine. You know, life circumstances. And then finally, well, now we would call this sin, but poor life choices. So for instance, uh, one of the poor, poor Hosea, Hosea as a prophet, right? God says, I'm going to use your life as an example. So I want you to represent Israel and go marry yourself a prostitute. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I said that backward. Hosea, you're, you're like me, the holy man, and you're going to marry a prostitute. That's Israel. It's like, ah, this is, now what, this is the mission God's put me on. So Hosea's wife, Gomer, then of course leaves him anyways, and then he has to go redeem Gomer back. And that's how much God loves us, right? You can do a lot before God says, I won't take you back. I mean, there might not be anything that he, that he say that for. You get the point. That's a picture of redemption. I'm going to bring you back, even if you made the choice to leave. Kind of like the prodigal son, you know, leaving purposefully. And then the father says, welcome back. That's redemption. Okay, so those are the three main ones. Now let's wrap up. So. Uh, we've done this before, but if you think about the story of the Bible, number six, uh, yeah, number six, the Bible itself is a story of redemption. So we start, the Bible starts in Genesis 1. Uh, the presence of God is in Genesis 1. He's walking through the garden with the people of God, that's Adam and Eve, and the place of God, the Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. So everything is perfect, right? Of course, we know the story, Adam and Eve sin, everything falls apart. But how does the story end? What happens when we get to the end of the book? Revelation 21. Well, you find exactly these same things. The presence of God is now dwelling in in the new Jerusalem. You have the people of God, those who are in the Lamb's book of life in the place of God. And that's, that is the new, the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem is descending. So what we get is that brackets the whole Bible. It's like a giant inclusio that tells you that's the story of the Bible. That's why I mean we usually use salvation, but it's the process of redemption. Now we want to participate in that so that God forgives our sins so that we can enter into that. And God is a saving God who will save us from things along the way, but it's in order to uh, fulfill the redemption of all things. So that's the biblical story. Let's go to number seven. Well, the book of Exodus, that's the definition of redemption. So just like the rabbi told me, I want a definition of salvation. He says, go read the book of Exodus because Exodus shows you in story. So if we go, we did this all last year with our Exodus story. 
And we say, how does Exodus begin? Well, the presence of God is not there. It's like way in the background, behind all the scenes. You don't see God showing up. The people of God are enslaved, the Israelites enslaved to a strong enemy, and there's no place for God to dwell. There's no dwelling amongst his people. So that's how we begin the story. And of course, we have the Passover and the great movements and all that. And how do we finish in Exodus 40? Ah, the presence of God intensely, right? Intensely. When Moses builds that tabernacle, right in the middle of the people, and you build the tabernacle of God, and God fills that tabernacle, and now the, it's the fullness. Now, it's like in science, it's like a, a fractal. You have the big picture, the fullness of redemption with, with the whole cosmos, but you have a, now you have a little picture of Exodus, and then your life is a little picture of redemption. So it's a little picture of what God's doing with is, Israel, but he's eventually going to do with the whole world. When I finally realized the power of understanding in imagery what redemption is, and began to see how the Bible's put together, it really changed the way I view how I read my Bible. And I forgot to put a picture of it on here, but um, I did, at the bottom of page two, I um, put a footnote to a book called The Epic of Eden. And that book by Sandra Richter, she's an uh, Old Testament professor at Westmont, is brilliant. I mean, it, it changes so many lives because it helps you. It's, it's very accessible. She's a wonderful teacher. And she helps you understand the Old Testament in a way that says, ah, oh, things just start opening up to people. I've always wondered about that. I've always, you know. So read that about the idea of redemption. And she'll, she goes into way more detail, but I meant to put that on the slide. That's a great, great reference to understanding this idea. Now, if the Bible's about redemption and Exodus is, a, is about redemption, well, then the next thing we find is the holiday pattern is actually inside the book of Exodus. And so for those that went through all last year with that book of Exodus, you can see these holidays start popping up. We've talked about a few of them. The last lesson we did on Exodus was how Pentecost and, and uh, on Mount Sinai, God delivering the Torah, it's like the same thing. So if we look at a few of these, obviously Passover, that's Exodus 12. Unleavened bread, that's Exodus 12. And this is the beginning of the process of redemption. This is a saving act by God, right? So you have a strong enemy. God is going to show up and pull you out. It's a rescuing. It's a, it's a little piece of salvation that pulls you out so that he can redeem you, bring you back into his presence, right? So we have the Passover and the unleavened bread. That begins it. Then, as you go your walk, you go to the Festival of Weeks. That's Pentecost or Shavuot. And this one, as we, we've talked about, it's the celebration of God delivering not only his Torah, but the covenant. It's the covenant of uh, the covenant relationship. I mean, this is, we, we serve a God that wants to be in covenant relationship. We are in covenant relationship with God through Jesus. The Festival of Weeks, that's that covenant relationship. But of course, God decided to enter a covenant relationship with people who can't keep the covenant, right? I mean, let's face it, everybody still sins. We're not perfect, right? So we need a day of atonement. We need a, a, we need a, a time. And this is exactly what happens with the Israelites, the golden calf sin. And through the mediation of, of Moses, God says, I'll forgive you, and I'm going to reestablish my covenant with you. And that's what he does every time we have to say, you know, I messed up. And then finally, what happens after you get received the, the uh, forgiveness of sins through the Day of Atonement? Now you're into the tabernacles and Exodus 40. And that's when God finally is dwelling with his people in that tabernacle. That's the ultimate picture of redemption. And this, by the way, going from top to bottom, right? This is what we're supposed to be doing too, right? I mean, we are. As the church, we're supposed to be building the space for God here on earth in, in a little mini taste of heaven through the process of being saved out of our sins, receiving not only the Bible, but, but the Holy Spirit. Then we have to go back to God when we sin, and then we celebrate. So you can see what's happening from big to little. It's all redemption. 
Now, as we finish, I'm going to show you a couple. It didn't put two of these on your sheet, but I want you to, um, you can just jot down and then go back and look, but you guys all know this one, right? So that we finish the redemption is God dwelling with his people. And the festival of tabernacles is that holiday, right? And when John starts out his gospel, he says about Jesus, he says, and the word became flesh and now, this Bible says lived. Some of your Bibles say dwelled. The Word became flesh and tabernacled. That's the Word. That sounds a little bit funny to us, but no, it fits exactly what God is up to, right? So, and the Word became flesh and Jesus tabernacled among us. That's powerful. John knows exactly why he's using that, that word. So, one, Jesus is God tabernacling among us. Second one, is uh, Revelation 7.15. I'm just going to read this, but if you want to look it up later, it says, Therefore, they're before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, that's God and the Lamb, will spread his tabernacle over them. So in, there's a picture of those in heaven where God has got his tabernacle around them. So important for us to understand uh, that holiday and and how John is now seeing this up in heaven. And then finally, and this is the most important one, if you look on your handout, Revelation 21.3, it's right at the bottom of page two, because this is almost, this is like, you, you hear the same language in Exodus, right? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, the tabernacle of God is with humans. This is the end of Revelation as the, the fullness, the, con the, the wedding is being consummated. The fullness of their relationship is coming together. The fullness of redemption is here. And God's going to, his tabernacles with humans, and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's the book of Exodus. That's redemption. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Just like uh, Ruth, you will be my people and God will be my God. So little mini picture of, of being redeemed into that household. So, okay. This is actually going to be, that should say review instead of preview. So we started tonight, Luke 22. Why is it so important that we notice unleavened bread, Passover, 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 Passover. Luke just can't repeat it enough. And then we go, Last Supper. It's like, no, no, no. Stick with Passover. Learn what that Passover is. Learn what an unleavened bread is. Why is this so important to the context of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension? So Luke 22. You, ha you also have, we did the holiday review. Those seven holidays, good biblical number, right? God doesn't choose randomly, so seven holidays. We're going to go through all of them. Leviticus 23 is the place you want to go. Be familiar with them. And then this really powerful idea of redemption being brought back into the Father's house, restored back into the Father's house. We're all lost. The world is lost. And God sends his Son, puts all of his resources on the line to redeem us back in so that we can dwell with uh, God's presence. That is part one of our appointed feasts. So let me go ahead. I'm going to end the slideshow. Yeah, it's, and it's everywhere if we have eyes to see it. Like the Bible explains redemption, Abraham rescues Lot, right? A king comes down from the north, strong enemy takes Lot captive. Abraham is the head of the household. He has to rally his own resources. They go up, they rescue Lot. Bam, there's your definition of redemption. And we don't think that way. But then you start looking at stories through the Bible and you see it over and over and over and over. It's just their way of telling you what God is up to. We want to redeem some of the stories of the Bible. You know, they, they build up barnacles over time. You know, we got to go down and scrub the barnacles off, look at them afresh to say, what is the Bible telling me, rather than going into our uh, uncritical thinking where we just kind of go into our old habits without really thinking about what the Bible's telling us. Yeah, Pentecost. You know, it's fallen away. 
which is sad. And, oh, I think you guys were out of town when we did the final one for Exodus and we talked about the idea of Pentecost. Because I'm trying to redeem Pentecost as a Christian celebration. To spend that 40 days, because what the what some of the Jewish groups do is that 40 days between, or no, I'm sorry, 50 days between Passover and, and uh, Pentecost, each week you have a set of prayers and they're building on each other. And what you're doing is you're, they envision themselves wanting to receive God's Torah again. That's the Jewish way of looking at it. So you don't just show up on Pentecost and say, give me the Torah. You work for seven weeks in prayer and going through processes to say, God, help me understand your will. And I think we could do the same thing as Christians. We could have a whole set of a ceremony that leads you into a opening yourself up to the Holy Spirit. To where the day finally arrives after 49 days of counting down. And I think, personally, if you had a whole church doing that that was intentionally opening up to the Holy Spirit, it would get wild. You would have wild stories of the Spirit moving. Because when that many people intentionally start opening themselves up to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit acts. And I think we lose something when we don't celebrate. Not only not celebrate it, but don't give it a solid enough context of what we're doing. Because just like we're ascending the mountain to receive the revelation of God, we're putting ourselves back into that first century and receiving the Holy Spirit. And you go through that 49-day process of doing that.